Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. We're in Matthew 27, and I'm going to be reading from verse 11 to 26. Starting at verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At a time, at a, time, at a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So the crowd had gathered. Pilate asked him, which one of you do you want me to, to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't anything uh, to do with the innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for a Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. I'm just going to pray quickly before Andrew comes up to speak. Um, dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that um, yeah, these words that Andrew's going to bring um, yeah, are just filled with truth um, and with truth about you, Jesus. And um, yeah, what this should be a blessed time. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew, and I'm wondering, did you see that big question poised at us in that passage? Verse 22, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Let's look at the options. Let's kick off with Pilate. How does Pilate answer this question? Pilate clearly knows Jesus is innocent. He knows he's no threat to his boss, Caesar Augustus, seated in Rome. But it's a Friday morning. And Pilate, through experience, senses a riot starting in verse 24. Although he knows he's innocent, he orders for Jesus to be flogged and crucified. He's managed to trick himself into thinking he has nothing to do with Jesus' death. But we see in this passage that simply is not true. You see, many people think hatred is the opposite of love, but really it's indifference. Pilate just looks after himself. The personal cost to him will be too great to set things right, so he doesn't bother 
as an innocent man leaves his court to be beaten and slain. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah? Will you, like Pilate, be indifferent in your rejection of Jesus? It's not a passive act, this apathy. It is intentional. It's a sin of omission, of not doing what you should have done. And many people in our world today fall into this category. They might have heard some good stuff about Jesus, like his teaching, and they might even like a few of his followers, and maybe they went to church or to mass growing up when they were younger, and they have a big respect for the Christian faith. But they really don't want Jesus to impact their lives or their relationship, their career, their time, their money, their habits. They're not atheists. They're just agnostic. But nonetheless, they reject, and in doing so, lend a hand in nailing Jesus to the cross. What about if you were a member of the crowd? What shall you do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Well, you simply follow the leader. We see down in verse 12 that the chief priests and the elders are the ringleaders. These were the pillars of the community, well-respected, feared even, powerful, wealthy people with political sway. Nowadays, this might be our TDs, our powerful business people, our social media influencers, our celebrities, or maybe closer to home, it's our parents, it's our friends, it's our colleagues at work. It's so hard to swim against the current, isn't it? It's so much easier just to fall into line, to be like everybody else around you, and to follow the leader who tells you what to say and what to think. Popular culture in Ireland and across the world tells you that Jesus isn't worth standing up for. Jesus isn't inclusive enough. He goes against modern science. His teachings are outdated. They're homophobic. They're transphobic. They're misogynistic and just plain old backwards. Don't love your enemy, love yourself first, the world tells us. Don't allow the creator God to, to define your identity, your gender, your worth. You figure that out by yourself. If someone hurts you or disagrees with you, don't love and forgive them. Cut them off, cancel them. Today, as a member of the crowd, what shall you do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Will you help hammer the nails into his hands and his feet because cultural leaders and almost everybody else is doing it? They don't shout crucify him today. It's more subtle than that. Cancel him, forget him, ignore him. Like Pilate, it is rejection all the same. So we've had Pilate and the crowd. What about this fellow Jesus Barabbas? We read in the other gospel accounts that he is a convicted criminal, a murderer, a plunderer, a rebel against Rome and against peace. Barabbas, what shall you do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah? When he walks away scot-free. We don't know what Barabbas was thinking at the time, but there's no mention of gratitude, of thanks. There's no remorse or regret apparent or a promise to live a better life. He doesn't protest and say, this is totally unfair, this man is, is innocent, I'm guilty, I deserve to be punished. No, he enjoys the gift that he gets, and he ignores the gift giver. As Christians here today, we believe that everything that is good on this earth is a gracious gift from God. Every sunrise and sunset, 
every relationship, every bite of food and sip of water, your job, your home, your friends, your family, fun, beauty, romance, rest, excitement. It is all a gift. What then shall you do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Like Pilate again, Barabbas is is not a passive rejection. Like a selfish child with a birthday present delivered to their home, they tear it open and they enjoy it without even a thought for who sent it. And this is what millions and billions of people do every day here on earth, enjoying their life without even a thought or a consideration for the creator. Ignorance is also rejection. What shall you do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah? What does Jesus say? Look down in this passage. Nothing. He says nothing. The irony of the scene comes down or becomes clear when you dig into Barabbas' name. The Aramaic name means son of the father. So as Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, heads silently to the cross, Jesus Barabbas, the son of the father, walks away free. And through it all, Jesus remains silent. Why? Because he knew the will of the father. He knows that in order for God to treat Barabbas like Jesus, he first has to treat Jesus like Barabbas. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free, his popularity or his fame. No, no, no. It was the love of the Father that set the guilty son free. Jesus Christ stands in silence. Now, I know in my life I've played most of these characters. I've been like Pilate. I've been like a member of the crowd. But most of all, I identify with Barabbas. And incredibly, in this story, Jesus, by standing silently, is actually screaming, I love Barabbas. But Jesus, Barabbas is a bad man. I love Barabbas, and I want him to go free. But Jesus, don't you realize he'll probably never acknowledge this free gift? I love Barabbas. But he rejected you. I love Pilate. But they rejected you. I love the crowd. For many of us, the automatic response to realizing we're like Barabbas is to turn our lives around, to try to live a good life, to be a better person, to follow all the rules and to do this and to do that. But Jesus is telling us as he stands there chained to a post, being whipped, blood dripping, He's telling us, you're no match for sin, for the devil, for temptation. You cannot just shake yourself free into being a good person. Or maybe, as Barabbas is, as our chains are being taken off, while Jesus is led away to slaughter, we might think, I don't deserve this. We feel the guilt and shame and remorse watching an innocent man, a perfect man, God himself, being strung up on that cross. We think I don't deserve anything good. In his silence, Jesus says to me, to you, to us here, give me your sins. Give me your shame. Give me your guilt. Give me your vain attempts to make yourselves good. Give it all to me. 
The greatest challenge in our lives as Christians today on Good Friday is not going to be our devotion or our focus or our discipline. It will simply be believing the gospel, the good news, that there is a God with a love for his sinful people so strong, so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so welcoming, so inclusive, that now because of the cross, we stand in this space of righteousness and forgiveness before God. How did we ever think we were going to set ourselves free? Go on, son, Jesus says. Go, Barabbas, son of the father. Live your life as a free man. I'll pay the price. I want to. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What then shall you do with Jesus who's called the Messiah? I have a nice simple one, A, B, C. A, accept you are a sinner in need of saving. B, believe Jesus was the Son of God who died in your place, freeing you from sin and giving you righteousness and forgiveness and eternal life with him. And C, count the cost of following him. You've trusted him to be your savior. Now trust him to be your Lord and master. Ask for help to be less like Pilate to be less like the crowd and less like Barabbas. Come to the cross on Good Friday. Admit, believe, and count the cost. We're going to move into a time now of reflection. And I invite you to consider and to pray about what we've heard and what we've read here today. There's a little post-it notes on your, on your seats with pens. And I'd love you over the next few minutes as the band plays to, to write something on there and to stick it up on the cross here at the front. Maybe you found yourself in the shoes of Pilate, apathetic to Jesus and his teachings. Or maybe you found yourself going along with the crowd with little thought for Jesus, for who he is or what he is or what he means to you. Maybe you found yourself enjoying the gifts without even thinking of the giver. Maybe recently your natural reaction has been to try to work yourself out of sin. Or maybe you've sat paralyzed by guilt and shame. I invite you to pray out these things to God now. And if willing, to, to jot them down and to stick them up on the cross. Use it as a time to say sorry, to confess, to give thanks, and to praise. And Lord, we thank you that the worst thing in history also became the greatest thing in history. Good Friday. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, 
and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung, hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminals rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thank you, Hannah. So good afternoon, and for any of you guys that don't know me, my name is Rebecca, and we're going to be spending about the next 10 minutes looking at the passage that was just read to us. So I'd ask you to, to keep your Bibles open, because um, we're, be, we're going to be following through um, what God is saying in this passage. And I want you to think, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you think of a king? Now look with me at Luke chapter 23, scattered throughout, this is what it says. Jesus is called God's Messiah, the chosen one, king of the Jews. They say, save yourself. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself and us. So there's this common thought throughout all the people that are at this scene, at the scene of the cross. If you say you are the king, why are you not saving yourself? And it makes sense, right, doesn't it? When would be a better time for God to show his power and his might, but to save himself from this pain and agony? In today's world, we don't have many kings, but just like the people at the time of Jesus, we are drawn to people who are powerful, whether that be through money, relationships, popularity, talents. We look up to those people. We see them as people worthy of leadership. So when Jesus came, a lowly carpenter, with few material belongings, no college degree, not reflecting physical strength and might, the Jewish people could not believe that he was the great king that was promised. They could not fathom a savior who came in what the world said then and the world says now is weakness. And I'm going to focus for the next few minutes on the two criminals at the cross that are beside Jesus. And um, I've given them the names Criminal 1 and Criminal 2, so I can, it's pretty imaginative, as you, can, as you can see. But let's look first at Criminal 1. What does verse 39 says? Look down with me. He hurls insults at him. He says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, I am not a betting woman, but I would strongly suggest that pretty much every person in this room, regardless of whether you believe in God or not, at some point in your life has prayed this. Something goes wrong and we say, if there is a God, if there is really someone out there, if there is really a God out there, he will hear this prayer, he'll hear my, hear my cry and he will get me out of this. 
And that is exactly what the criminal says. He turns to Jesus, you're supposed to be the king. I'm dying here. I'm in pain. I'm in agony. Get me out of this situation. How does Jesus respond? He says nothing. And maybe you resonate with that. You feel that God said or did nothing in response to your plea. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that there's a flaw in that logic. See, if you prayed something and it didn't happen, you're coming from a position of saying that this is how life ought to be. This is how my life ought to go. But the reality is that you and everyone else in this room has no idea how your life ought to go. Otherwise, you would be God. See, if God doesn't fix your problems the way you want it, then he is a bad God or he doesn't exist. The irony, of course, is that the first criminal couldn't see that in order to be truly saved, he needed Jesus to stay on that cross. Charles Sturgeon said, Jesus looked down and he saw the people he was dying for. Some cringing, some snarling, some clueless. And in the act of the greatest strength and love in the history of the world, he stayed. So a perfect God of perfect love and justice did not give the criminal what he wanted. He offered him something so much more, eternal salvation. So now let's turn to look at criminal two. How does he respond to everything that is going on? Well, look down at verse 40. He says, he rebukes the other criminal. He says, don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he further goes on to say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I want to say that there's two key distinctions between the first criminal and the second. The first criminal cries out to be saved. Criminal two acknowledges that he has been punished justly. He deserves the punishment he is facing, but he knows that Jesus has committed no wrong. That's what he says, plain as day. See, in that moment, he understands the gospel, the good news, that he deserves his punishment, that there is nothing he can do to right his wrong, that he is lost, that his sentence would be final, except, and this is the glorious except, the punishment fell on Jesus and not him. How do I know that? How do I know that he thought all of that in one minute? Rebecca, aren't you reading between the lines a bit here? With such sweet and sincere humility, criminal two asks to be remembered. They are both hanging, dying on the cross, and yet this criminal has a profound feeling that this is not the end with Jesus. He talks of your kingdom. He talks in the future tense. Look at that line. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He, he sees a future. He knows that Jesus is the one true king. And the second difference, criminal one 
cares about his skin, his physical flesh and bone. The second criminal cares about his soul. He knows he needs Jesus and only Jesus to save him. See, the second criminal has the same problem as the first one. They are both in pain, both dying, and yet the second one sees the bigger picture. Yes, he has problems, and yes, you can be sure that they are painful and they are pressing and they are real. He is dying on a cross. But he knows that all he needs is Jesus. He doesn't ask Jesus to get off the cross. He asks Jesus to remember him. So what convinced the second criminal that Jesus was the one true king? Well, I want to bring you again back into God's word. And I want to point you to the character of Jesus at the cross. It is often said that a person's true character is revealed under pressure. Now, most of my friends, and definitely my husband could testify when I'm under pressure, it's exam season, papers are everywhere. I am so much snappier. <laughs> I'm not pleasant to be with. My mother would tell you my room's a mess. I'm a pain. It reveals my character. Because suddenly, all these things I want to control my exams, how I do, how I perform, all these things are out of my control, and I'm, I'm fearful. I'm scared. And so it brings out all these aspects of my character, the bits that I, that I want to hide, but they're there. But I'm going to point you to two places where Jesus's character is revealed. So let's look at these verses. Jesus, in the most excruciating pain, with people hurling abuse at him, says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He has deep gut-wrenching compassion for them. And the reason the character of Jesus is so captivating because, is because even in great turmoil, his heart is so good. Today, it is so easy to live by the, the motto, yeah, I've, I've forgiven you, but I haven't really forgotten about what you did. On the outside, we say we've forgiven someone. Maybe we let them back into our life. Maybe we do something for them. But internally, we want their demise. We want them to hurt like us. We have our ammunition locked and loaded for the next time they mess up. If you're a believer in Christ today, look at the cross. Jesus, in the face of death, in persecution, calls to his heavenly Father to forgive them, to save them. That's what's in his heart, is revealed in this situation. And look with me again at verse 43. How does Jesus respond to the second criminal? Does he say, yeah, you're right. You don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. If anyone deserves it, it's you. Does he get angry in his pain and lash out? No. When the savior of the world, who committed no wrong, who faced betrayal, persecution, abuse, an unconstitutional court hearing, his response is one which displays unconditional love. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So why does the criminal turn to Jesus? Well, we know at the start of Luke in the Gospels, chapter 1, verse 1, Luke says that upon hearing evidence from eyewitnesses, 
So we know that if the eyewitnesses on the ground heard that prayer that Jesus cried, you can be sure that the criminal next to him on the cross heard it. See, I would suggest to you that he thought, what kind of man would die for the people down there? The crowd didn't see it. The Roman soldiers didn't see it. The other criminal didn't see it. They didn't realize that they needed a savior. They needed Jesus to stay on that cross so justice would be done. The second criminal, he got it. And he knew that Jesus was the one true king. So take a moment. Which criminal do you think that you are? And you might be thinking, gosh, I'm not a criminal. But see, the message of the Bible is that we all have sinned. We have all wronged against God. Like oil and water, we are impure and God is pure. The two cannot mix together. We all need Jesus to save us. And maybe you identify with the second criminal. You have a past and you feel as if it's too late to turn back to Christ. Well, my friend, this is the good news. The Gospel of Luke, the book of the Bible we are reading from, shows how Jesus loved the outlaws. He didn't discriminate based on paycheck or how you looked or whether you obeyed all the laws or you broke them. The second criminal was welcomed by the king. As the hymn goes, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And when would the criminal be welcomed? Well, let's see, what does the Bible say? Is when, he, when he sorted out his life, when he was getting better at his quiet times, when he was going to church more. Look at verse 43. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today he is with Jesus in paradise. So we need to ask Jesus to save our souls and not our skin. And we can trust that because our good, loving, and just God sent his son to die for us, the problems of this world pale into comparison when we remember the blood shed for us at the cross and the paradise promised. I'm just going to pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a good God. I thank you that for you so loved the world, you sent your one and only son to die for us so that we could have eternal life, Lord. I thank you that we can come to you with such humility, knowing that we've all fallen short of your glory, and yet you accept us and love us. And I thank you, Lord, that you remembered us on that cross, that every person in this room, your name was was in your heart, Lord. Amen.